Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Addiction Treatments That Work. I'm your host, Kenneth Anderson, and tonight our guest will be Suzanne Bargman from the uh, International Center for Clinical Excellence and uh, Kristen Neff, who wrote the book Self-Compassion. Before we start the show, I'm going to do a little plug for our website and our book. Our website is hamsnetwork.org. We are a free-of-charge lay-led support group for people who want to make any positive change in their drinking habits, from safer drinking to reduced drinking to quitting altogether. Our book is called How to Change Your Drinking, A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. It's available from Amazon, or you can get more information from hamsnetwork.org book. Our first guest tonight is Suzanne Bargman. Uh, she is a co-founder of the International Center for Clinical Excellence, and uh, she is going to be talking to us about client-directed outcome-informed therapy. Welcome to the show, Suzanne. Thank you, Kim. Very excited to be talking to you today. So what is uh, client-directed outcome-informed therapy? Well, client-directed outcome-informed therapy is what we also today refer to as feedback-informed treatment. And what that means is for uh, therapists to ask their clients for feedback about the client's experience of progress during the therapy and the client's experience of the alliance. So so the client-directed outcome-informed therapy or feedback-informed treatment requires for the therapist to ongoingly monitor the effect and the, the alliance of, from the client's perspective. Now, when the clients come in... Um do they do they request what kind of services they're looking for? What kind of therapy they would like to receive? Well, um, one of the ideas behind client-directed outcome-informed therapy is actually to to try to figure out and try to accommodate the client's preferences. So um, the therapist asks the client about what what kind of therapy they think will be helpful to them and tries to adjust to those preferences. Well, that sounds good. Um, We know some of the more uh, traditional, old-fashioned substance abuse uh, treatment programs in the United States are very much, uh, they don't want to listen to the client's wishes at all. They want to say, you need to abstain, and that's it, and we don't want to hear from you. So I think it's very good um, to take uh, input from the client themselves. Are there tools that you use to uh, measure Uh, how the therapy is working? Absolutely. There are two very brief tools that we use. One is called the outcome rating scale, and one is called the session rating scale. So both tools are filled out by the client at each session to track the changes in in the client's well-being or functioning as the therapy progresses and to track the client's experience of how the work together is going. And what do these tools look like? Um, They have four questions, uh, and then there are four short lines for the client to mark their scores on. So they're they're made as what in medicine is talked about as a visual analog scale, which is actually just a 10-centimeter line. And the instruction is that it moves from good to bad, and the client has to figure out how have I been doing, how have I been doing with myself, how have I been doing with the people that I'm close to? How have I been doing with the people that are 
not as close to me or how have I been doing with my work, my social functioning, and how is my overall functioning? So this is like right from 1 to 10? Yeah, but, but there are no numbers on the scale, but yeah, it's actually kind of like a from 1 to 10 or 0 to 10. How, how have I been doing? Okay, I know one of the books about uh, the client-directed outcome in form therapy, CDOI as they call it. It's the heroic mm-hmm. client. And uh, what is what does this mean? Why do you talk about heroism of clients? Uh, I think the, the, the phrase or the term, the heroic client, is aiming at what you asked about in the beginning, that actually clients hold a lot of knowledge and hold a lot of um, wisdom about what kind of help they want or need. And um, it, it sort of puts the focus on the importance of asking clients about what they think it will take for them to start feeling better. Um, this also sort of shoots us at the second scale, the session rating scale, or what is also talked about as an alliance scale. Because what we know when we look at psychotherapy research, we know that it's the client's experience of being in a warm and empathic relationship with a therapist, feeling heard and understood. It's the client's experience of working on goals that make sense to them. And it's the client's experience of working in a way that they think is useful for them. These things are important to optimize the benefit of the treatment. So clients benefit more from treatment that actually makes sense to them. Well, I think it's very important that uh, clients um, should feel that the that the session is working for them. Um, as I've said, in some of the traditional substance abuse treatment programs in the U.S., People are just ordered around, they're confronted, and um, I think there's a movement away from that right now, and it seems like client-directed outcome-informed therapy has many resources that people could draw on to improve uh, the Mm. current practices and make them much better than uh, they have been in the past. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And it's um, in my part of the world, I'm in the north of Europe, in my part of the world, actually, these ways of thinking about treatment or therapy have become very, very uh, dominating. So, so um, in, in Norway, for example, the government has decided that uh, all treatment for children and families must be guided by these types of feedback systems. Yes, you're in Denmark, aren't you? Yes, I'm in Denmark, and, and Denmark's following right behind Norway with the same kinds of uh, political decisions about this. So it's it's very it's very hot. <laughs> it's a very huge idea here to to listen more to our clients and to let their feedback influence the way we treat them. Yes, I've seen many good models uh in Europe that I think that the United States can learn a lot from and this seems like a really good model um yeah, it, it makes a lot of sense. It's um, in many ways it, it draws on ideas from uh, from research that actually we've known since 1936. It's quite amazing that it's taken us so long to respond to what we've known since 1936, when a researcher said actually it's not the specific model that's important. It's more in in what's uh, more, what's more common about therapy, the relationship between the client and the therapist. 
and making that work for the client. It's kind of amazing that we yeah, go ahead. I was just going to ask you about that. So it's not a specific school of therapy. Um, can uh, client-directed outcome-informed therapy be used with any school of therapy? Absolutely. What what we talk about is that this is kind of a meta model, which means anybody using any kind of approach can also use the client-directed outcome-informed in- approach. What this does is more sort of it it, it tunes us in to uh, feedback from the clients and it helps us use our model better and it makes us able to adjust or change if we can see that our model is not working. So is this about improving the therapeutic alliance? Absolutely, but it's also about improving uh, our responsiveness to clients that are not benefiting from our care. Because, when again, when we look at psychotherapy research literature, um, on, on average about 10% of clients in care actually get worse while they're in care. And another about 30 or 40% don't benefit from the treatment that they are currently in. So the idea is also for us as therapists to become more aware of these clients so we don't keep them in unhelpful treatment for uh, for long, but we change the direction of what we're doing. Okay, I see there's a chapter in this book, The Hero Client, that's called The Client's Theory of Change. Tell me a little bit about The Client's Theory of Change and how it uh, interacts with the therapy. Well, The Client's Theory of Change is uh, a concept that I guess we're moving a bit away from that concept because it's become more clear that the understanding is a bit broader. But in the, the idea of the client's theory of change is that clients come into our offices or consultations with understandings about how change occurs in their life, what, what types of help will, will result in change in their lives. Today we talk about preferences, that clients have preferences. Uh, all of us have preferences about special ways of being helped. And the the idea is that if we don't listen to these preferences, if we don't accommodate the client's theory of change, we're not we're not on a very good track to succeed. Instead, if we tap into those informations from clients about their preferences or about how help usually occurs in their lives, we'll we'll be much better able to to figure out what type of treatment can I offer you to make sure that you get help. Okay, that sounds very good. Um, I know there were some stories I was reading in the book where um, where the therapists were actually asking the clients, what would be a good solution for you? Where would you want to go? What do you want to do? Can you expand a little more on that? Well, um, because the, the therapist asks for feedback at every session, it also invites in an openness. And um, I, I usually talk about this as a collaboration, and that's actually what we talk about in my part of the world, that this is a very collaborative approach. So it sort of it aims at moving away from... Um, from a way of, of treating clients where the therapist is the expert and the therapist knows the solution to the client's problems into a more collaborative understanding of how therapy works. So my contribution 
is to be able to ask questions into what the client might want. The client can add a lot to that and help guide me in the way that I um, design the treatment or adjust the treatment. So it's it aims at sort of go, moving from uh, an expert position to a more collaborative position where we work together, client and therapist. Okay, now what is the International Center for Clinical Excellence? The International Center for Clinical Excellence is a really exciting project. It is a, a project that was founded in I think in in 2010, I think that, or 2009, December of 2009, we launched. It's it's a social network. It's built on uh, a format that looks a bit like Facebook, and it's uh, a social network for therapists that are all dedicated to developing clinical excellence. So the, the mission for us is to figure out how do we get better at helping the clients that come and see us. And there are currently more than 2,000 therapists from all over the world that have joined and that are talking to each other, exchanging ideas about how can we improve the outcome of the services that we deliver. Very exciting, actually. Yes, it's very interesting. I'm a member, actually. Well, you know that. Um, yeah, I know that. <laughs> but, it's a, yeah, it's a very interesting uh social networking site, um, well, therapist networking site. And I've uh, learned yeah. a lot of interesting things while, I was, while I've been on there. Uh, do you have any examples or stories from your experience of doing this type of therapy that you'd like to share with us? Excuse me, I, I think, can you repeat that question, Ken? I'm sorry, I think Skype just <clears throat> changed oh, a bit. It does that sometimes. Uh, do you have yes. any, do you have any stories or examples from your work with this therapy that you would like to share with us? Uh, you know, making details very anonymous, of course. Absolutely, I I work in in my part of the world. I work as a single practitioner, so actually I'm uh, quite isolated. I don't have colleagues every day that I consult with on my cases. So what I have done and and what I continue to do is I discuss my work with some of my colleagues on the International Center for Clinical Excellence, trying to get input about how to, more ideas about how to navigate. Um, And I've had uh, had one female that I was talking to that uh, I, I didn't quite know how to help her. She wasn't experiencing progress, so I brought her up. In, uh, in anonymous form, of course, but asked people would they have ideas for a client with this type of problems because my approach wasn't really helpful. And, uh, and, and members of the ICCE had a lot of very different ideas about how could this woman get help. And what I did actually was I wrote down the suggestions and I brought them back to my conversations with this woman and we ended up um, tr- using some of these ideas for a referral to a different therapist. Um, and for me, that's sort of that's very valuable because this is what I this is what I don't have in my own work. I don't have people to talk to about my work. So to have people twenty four seven willing and able to help uh, suggest other strategies for what I'm doing because I know that I'm not capable of helping everybody that I talk to. Okay, 
Do you have uh, any stories you'd like to share about using CDOI with any clients that you've uh, done in the past? Of course, you know, make it anonymous so that it's not anything specific, but how's it worked within your practice? Well, there's there's one example of uh, a young woman that came to consult with me. She was uh, very depressed, and um, she'd lost her mom a couple of years before. The mom had died because of an, an aneurysm, so she'd suddenly died. And um, my preferred way of, way of working is uh, narrative therapy. So I tried a couple of narrative techniques with this young woman. And it wasn't helping her. That that was apparent on the outcome rating scale. Her scores simply didn't change. So she was still in a lot of distress after about four or five sessions. And so I used that information to talk to that young woman about our work together and, and said, it seems that even though you like our conversations, because she actually did, she liked coming to see me, that, that what we're doing together isn't helping you with what you've sought help about. So it seems that your client, your, your problems are not being solved by the, the conversations we're having. And she agreed with me. And we um, we, did, we brainstormed ideas for what we could do instead. And after talking about different ideas, she and I, I think, together came up with the idea of inviting in the rest of her family because Actually, she said she said more. It's more of a problem for me with the family that's still here. My relationship with the family that's still here is is more of a problem than the mother that I lost. So we brought in her dad and her sisters for I think a total of four or five sessions, and that sort of dramatically changed her well-being. It changed the way she felt. So it's uh, her her feedback and and monitoring the outcome of our work was. I mean, key for me to discover that I was not helping her and also key in talking to her about how to deal with that. Okay. Are there any other examples that you would like to talk about? Um, there there are many examples because I use this with all my clients. Um, in, in my head, I, I just, I have, I see patterns on the graphs of the outcome rating scale I see the patterns, and I talk to my clients about what what these patterns mean. So I've had clients that, um, I, I, I mean, I of course I have clients that feel helped, and that continue to work with me. Where the graph is is uh, is great for us to look at because it confirms how much progress they they experience. I had one young woman who um, who said to me, "My mother doesn't believe how much better I feel." So she actually asked me if I could give her a copy of the graph so she could take it home to her mom because it's kind of, for her as well, a nice way of documenting that talking to me actually helped her a lot. It changed a lot, and she'd like to show her mom. I've I've had clients also that um, that have not felt helped and where I've used the, the graphs and the conversation about the graphs to um, to decide on a referral to another type of treatment. It's um, for me. It's it's in every piece of my work. I I get the feedback from the clients, and I use that feedback to navigate with that client. Okay, what does CDOI think about evidence-based treatments? That's a very exciting question, Ken. This is something I feel very passionately about. Just uh, this Monday, I was at a conference in Copenhagen. 
uh, about evidence-based treatments. Um, and uh, the last speaker at the conference was Bruce Wampold, who is uh, a, an amazing researcher from the U.S., actually, who has uh, done a very important piece of work in his analysis of psychotherapy research. And Bruce Wampold is the inspiration for CDOI as well. And what Bruce Wampold says is that there is no evidence of the concept of evidence-based practice. Did that make sense? <laughs> um, it makes sense to me. I think uh, we're going to have to go into some more details for our listeners, though. Yes. Um, so uh, the, the idea of evidence-based practice is that we can do experiments. Uh, we can do randomized clinical trials and that we can show that one treatment is better than the other. And, uh, exactly. How, what does CDOI think about this approach? Yeah, um, the work of people like Bruce Wampold, what he has done is he has looked at the research. He has looked at the studies that have been done that compare two different studies, that no, two different approaches. And what he says is whenever two approaches of therapy when CBT or, and psychodynamic therapy, whenever those approaches are compared to each other in a study, there is no difference in the effect of the two approaches. So what he says and what CDOI thinks is that it's not the specific model that's important. What is important is what is referred to as common factors. It's um, the factors that are common in all treatment and the most potent of those factors is the therapeutic alliance that the client and the therapist are able to work together in a way that the client experiences as useful. The second most potent factor is what is talked about as allegiance, that the therapist believes in his or her model of therapy. And the least important factor is the specific, specific model that the therapist uses. So it's, I mean, this brings us back uh, to uh, some of the pioneers, I think, like Carl Rogers was also very much in client-centered therapy, don't you think? Mm. Yeah, it's it's not quite the same because what, what we would say is that Carl Rogers is a represent of an another approach. <laughs> this this becomes very uh, this becomes very complex once you start looking into it. Because there are these two levels. There, there's a level of the specific therapeutic approach, and we can believe in different types of approaches. And then there's the meta level, where we look at all approaches and say they all work about the same. And, and this is quite radical because this means that I, 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 although I really care for my, uh, my narrative approach, I don't believe my approach is any more useful than... CBT or psychodynamic therapy used by a person that believes in it. And the key here is that that um, clients, that we need diversity. We need diversity so clients can choose an approach that fits with their preferences. And therapists need to be able to choose an approach that fits with their preferences or what they believe in. Well, that makes a lot of sense to me. Um I'm going to go back to uh, substance abuse treatment for a minute. And um, mm -hmm. 
uh, a lot of people in the U.S. think that uh, the therapist should be assigning goals to the client and that, well, they should be assigning a goal of abstinence and say, you know, you don't have any choice, uh, you know, and that you should abstain and there is no moderation, there is no harm reduction. So uh, what do you think of that kind of approach? Well, I, I guess my answer would be the same, that that approach probably works well for some clients. And for some clients, that approach will not work very well. So again, it's a question of figuring out, does it fit with the specific client's preferences? And if it does, that's perfectly fine, and it's good to continue. If it doesn't fit, it's our job as professionals to have other ideas or other approaches available to fit with that client. Okay, that's it. That's an interesting way to put that. I'm going to take that home, and I'm going to think mm-hmm. about that a little bit more. Um, tell me a little bit more about the alliance. The uh, you said the alliance with the model. The, that, the what? Uh, the, the allegiance is that what you're allegiance? About? Allegiance. That's the yes. word I wanted. Yes. Talk to me the, about allegiance. Well, um, the allegiance factor isn't that intriguing. The allegiance factor is much more important and what model I'm using, that means, and this has huge implications in my part of the world, because I think actually the same is happening in the U.S., but in in Denmark at least, therapists are being mandated to use evidence-based practices uh, in their work. So in the psychiatric system, cognitive behavioral therapy is uh, what everybody believes in because of the research they've done. So therapists all over Denmark in the psychiatric system are being mandated to use that technique. If you look at the research that people like Bruce Wampold have done, it makes very little sense because therapists need to work in a way that they have an allegiance to, that they believe in. The therapist needs to be able to convey to the client that they believe they have a model that will be useful for that client. It's it's all about uh, creating an atmosphere of, of uh, hope and expectancy. It's all about uh, letting the client know that we believe we can help them because it makes them, it activates what we talk about as the placebo effect of psychotherapy, which is a very strong effect. Okay, I'm going to finish up pretty quick here. Um, Tell me, what are, you, what are you working on right now? Any specific project, and what are your plans for the future? I'm always working on the ICCE, trying to develop that website and trying to um, make it even more useful for therapists. Along with that, I have a couple of writing projects. Um, another part of the ICCE that we're very interested in is the research on expertise and excellence, because that's where we're at right now, research-wise. If it's not the specific model, it's, if it's not training therapists in a specific model to make them better at what they do, then we have to look in a different direction. So that's where we're at. We're looking at expert performance in general and trying to figure out what does that mean in terms of training therapists. Can we use some of these ideas to be better at training therapists? And I have a bit of writing on that, and I'm, I'm working with uh, Scott Miller and other people from the ICCE trying to develop these ideas further. Okay. Thank you very much for being our guest tonight, Suzanne Bargman. 
Thank you for having me here. It's been very exciting to be able to talk to you about this. Okay, it looks like our next guest is here. I'm going to bring her on. Hello, Kristen, can you hear me? Yes, I can. Hello, Ken. Hello, welcome to the show. Let me give you a little introduction here. Uh, Kristen Neff is the author of a book called Self-Compassion. I discovered the book quite recently. Um, uh, David Van Nuys has some podcasts out there, uh, Shrink Wrap Radio, Wise Counsel. I was on his uh, website, and I saw your uh, interview there, read the transcript, and I said, wow, this is something that we really need. So welcome to the show, Kristen. Oh, well, thanks so much for having me. So tell me a little bit about what is self-compassion? All right. Okay, so the um, the short answer to that is it's basically treating yourself with the same kind, caring, and uh, supportive concern that you would treat a good friend. Most of us, the way we speak to ourselves, the way we treat ourselves is much harsher than we would ever act towards anyone we cared about. I mean, actually harsher usually than how we treat strangers. Uh, so it's it's... It, I define self-compassion as the same as compassion for others. It's just you include yourself in the circle of compassion, that you realize you're human, you make mistakes, you deserve kindness and, and care, that you know no one's perfect, um, that I'm going to try to grow and improve because I care about myself, not because I'm inadequate as I am. Okay. Do you, uh, does this have any Buddhist uh, roots that you took it from? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> you know, I try to talk about it in a secular way, but um, this is not a great idea I came up with. I actually uh, heard about the idea when I first started practicing Buddhist meditation. And most people know that Buddhists talk a lot about compassion, but in a lot of major Buddhist traditions, they always say you need to first give yourself compassion, open your heart to yourself, before you can really open it up to others. And when I first heard that message, it, it well, it really pretty much changed my life almost immediately. I hadn't realized that I had permission to be kind to myself, and I was going through a really hard time. And I just started being more supportive um, instead of saying I'm a terrible person, saying, well, you made some mistakes, but here's why, and let's let's see how we can work on this in, a, again, a kind, supportive way instead of a belittling way. And it made a huge difference in my life, and that's why I'm I'm a bit of a zealot when it comes to self-compassion because I've needed it, and I've seen what a huge difference it can make in your life. Well, what impressed me, uh, because uh, I work with uh, substance abusers in substance abuse and in a harm reduction approach, and so often uh, people get involved in the more traditional substance abuse treatment programs, and they're actually taught to beat themselves up. And... uh, the people I've encountered, they've all, they, they already beat themselves up so much that that's the last thing in the world is they need, that they need as a program to tell them, you know, to beat themselves up more, to call themselves bad names like an alcoholic or an addict or to say all these bad things. Uh, I actually found in the groups I've been conducting, you know, when people start forgiving themselves more, uh, they are able to make progress. And, you know, when people are just, really beat themselves up all the time. They tend to just have terrible relapses and because they, they feel miserable and they need to use their substances more to uh, get rid of the miserable feelings. So uh, I'm sorry I'm doing a big monologue here, but this yeah. is uh, 
what impressed me so much about your approach is because I saw people need this so much. Uh, Marlette's work on relapse prevention said there's an abstinence violation effect that, you know, people have a slip and then they beat themselves up and then they feel unhappy and then they use more and they go out for a bender for a week, a month, for 10 years sometimes. Um, so it seems to me this, this is something I really want to see integrated into substance abuse treatment programs. And uh, I, we've been working in this direction, you know, without having work for it already. Um, so sorry to do this big thing, but I think that your book is very excellent. And, okay, I'm going to let you respond. I have some questions for okay. you. But go ahead. Go well, ahead. I, mean, I think the point you make is so so good. And actually the number one reason people give for why they aren't more self-compassionate is they really think their self-criticism is necessary to get them to change behaviors that maybe are, you know, harmful and that if they aren't self-critical, they'll just let themselves get away with anything. And I think there's a real confusion between clearly seeing behaviors that are harmful, causing yourself suffering or causing other suffering, other suffering, and global negative evaluations of the self. In other words, not just I made a mistake, but I am a failure, I am worthless. And that's where we really get into trouble. We absolutely need judgment in the sense of wisdom. Oh, I see, when I did that, that led to that consequence that really caused myself mm -hmm. or someone else harm. But that doesn't mean that you are a bad person. That may, means you made a mistake. But if you start going down the path of that means I'm a bad person, then you become depressed, you stop losing faith in yourself. Again, you need to go on a bender or eat that, you know, that gallon of Ben and Jerry's ice cream because you feel so mm -hmm. bad about yourself, and that's unproductive. The research actually shows that if you're kind and supportive, just like the kind, supportive parent would be toward their child who made a mistake, and you say, you know, you did mess up. That behavior wasn't good, but it doesn't mean you're a bad person. You know, I know you can try again. Let me help you. Let me support you to make a change. And that's what you do with self-compassion. You support yourself to make a change, but you don't say, I'm worthless, I'm terrible. It's a very big emotional difference. Okay. You have a chapter. It's called Opting Out of the Self-Esteem Game. And uh, tell me a little bit about self-esteem. Is it good? Is it bad? Is it a problem? <clears throat> well, it just it all depends on uh, how you get it and what you do to keep it. All right? So we know that feeling good about yourself as opposed to hating yourself is definitely good psychologically. The problem is why do you feel good about yourself? If it's because, hey, I'm a human being, all humans are intrinsically worthy of respect, that's a healthy source of self-esteem. Unfortunately, in our society, self-esteem comes from um, being special and above average. We all have to be above average. Think about the dynamics of that, right? We can't mm -hmm. all be above average. It's logically impossible. So we're always trying to see ourselves as better than others. We're always comparing ourselves and subtly trying to put other people down subtly trying to puff ourselves up. The problem, of course, is there's always someone more successful than you, always someone doing better than you. So eventually we feel bad about ourselves. Um, our sense of self-worth goes up and down depending on did I have a good day, did I have a bad day. It's really the, the source of our self-esteem is the problem. So with self-compassion, there's still positive feelings, you know, care, kindness, um, connectedness. These are good, positive feelings. But you do it because you fail, 
you have compassion because you've had a bad day. It's not like compassion flies out the window whenever you make a mistake. It's just the opposite. That's precisely when compassion steps in. So it's a much more stable way to have a, you might say have a positive relationship to yourself that doesn't, again, depend on these judgments. Am I a good person? Am I a bad person? Uh, where does the word compassion come from? Well, um, when, you know, when I first started doing research on this topic, and I actually got interested partly because I had done some self-esteem research and I wanted to talk about how this was different, but I really just read every book I could get my hands on, um, many of them from Buddhist traditions, but also some other philosophical Christian traditions. Um, so the word compassion in most traditions means the desire to alleviate suffering, concern for suffering and the desire to alleviate it. So it's really... You know, a fairly consistent meaning is just in traditional Buddhist approaches, you always include yourself in that. But usually in most Western writings, they don't talk about including yourself in compassion. It's always compassion for someone else. Um, but it's really, now, and one word I like to use, it's kind of not very scientific, but the word open-hearted, I think it really conveys mm-hmm. a lot of what it feels like to have compassion, a kind of softness that responsiveness, um, acceptance, understanding. So is there a difference between uh, compassion, self-compassion and self-pity? Yes, very big. So self-compassion, you know, my formal definition of self-compassion is it's a sense of self-kindness. It's also um, very important, a sense of common humanity. Uh, we're all, we all have strengths and weaknesses. We all fail. We all make mistakes. I'm not unusual in my mistakes or messing up. Everyone in their own way has challenges and struggles. So it's a very inclusive emotion. Um, And with self-compassion, the idea is um, there's some clear awareness. You see yourself clearly. You don't don't, um, suppress things you've done wrong, but you don't actually run away with this exaggerated drama of, oh, this is so terrible. You kind of say, oh, yeah, I did this or I've got this problem. Everyone has their weaknesses. I can be kind in this in this sense. Okay. Self-pity, on the other hand, is poor me, not everyone has problems. It's woe is me. It's a very egocentric emotion, and it tends to, again, be exaggerated. Um, the drama gets, uh, you know, you kind of go, woe is me. This is so terrible. You know, I, I tore my favorite blouse or whatever the drama happens to be. So it's it's a much more connected emotion than self-pity is, and, and much more balanced and clear. Are there some core components of self-compassion? Right. Well, that's what I was kind of alluding to. I, I hate to always break out my NEF three-component models. <laughs> do you have a do you have a three-component model of self-compassion, which is basically uh, this sense of when confronting confronting your own suffering, which can be because you failed or made a mistake, or even just life's rough, not your fault, that you treat yourself with a kindness as opposed to a harsh self-criticism. Um, you recognize that the experience is a shared common human experience as opposed to feeling isolated by your mistakes or by your suffering. And again, the third is mindfulness, that you are aware of when you're suffering. When you're suffering. A lot of people aren't actually aware when they're suffering. They're so lost either in problem-solving mode, or they're so busy attacking themselves that they don't even stop to say, ooh, this is really hard right now. So it's being aware of your suffering in a mindful way, which means you also aren't exaggerating it. You're just seeing things clearly as they are. So those are the three main components of self-compassion, but they all work together as a 
as a one a single synergistic synergistic unit. Are there some exercises or things we can do to be compassionate to ourselves? Uh, yes, in my book I have dozens of exercises, but uh, some very simple ones are, the first thing, I think the most important thing is to notice how you talk to yourself. I even suggest to people that they may want to write it down on a piece of paper so they can see it just you know, in their face. What did I actually say? And then ask yourself, is this compassionate language? Would I say this? To a friend who messed up, would I use these words? And if not, um, think about, well, how would I say this to a friend that I cared about? How, w- how would I say this to a child that I cared about? Um, luckily, we do know how to be compassionate, most of us, because most of us are actually fairly compassionate to others, at least in close relationships. So we know how to be supportive. We know how to be understanding. We know how to be warm. We just need to start practicing how to do this for ourselves. So that kind of perspective taking, well, what would I say to a really good friend or what would a very compassionate, I don't know, my my favorite grandmother, what she, what would she say to me? And that's a way to kind of um, get yourself into the habit of speaking to yourself um, more kindly. Uh, so, so that's one is the language. I think another very simple one is uh, physical gestures of affection. And this may sound touchy-feely, but it is, and there's a reason why it is, which is as mammals, all mammals, all mammal young, their bodies are built to feel calmed and soothed when they receive, when they're rocked by their mothers or they're cuddling with their mothers. Our bodies respond to warm, soothing touch. It releases oxytocin. It lowers their cortisol levels. We feel safe and secure. Um, and so there's actually research showing that if you just, you know, give yourself maybe a little hug when no one's looking or put your hands over your heart, Give yourself some physical gesture of affection. Even if your mind can't go there, your body will actually start responding, will start calming down, will feel less stressed, will feel more safe. And then sometimes that actually helps helps it uh, helps you uh, feel safe enough to start using the kinder, more compassionate language. Uh, so that's I, so, that's a really easy one. Just give yourself a hug. Okay, for some of our listeners that might not know, what is oxytocin? Okay, sorry. So oxytocin is um, it's one of the body's chemicals that um, people, are, researchers are really interested in that, that tends to be released, for instance, when the mother breastfeeds her baby. It's um, a, um, a hormone that just calms and soothes an organism. Mammals basically are the ones that have it. So it's uh, you can even feel it if you put your hand gently on your heart and you feel a slight warm, oozy feeling. Yeah. That's probably oxytocin being released. Uh, people say that the inventors of um, MDMA, which later became known as ecstasy, were actually trying to mimic the effect of oxytocin. I'm not totally sure that's a true story, but that's the that's the story out there. So yeah, calm, think- safe. Sorry, what? I think I've heard some things that, that MDA, MA does mimic oxytocin in some Right, way. yeah. Like I, said, I, I, can't, I haven't seen a research study on this, so I can't, I can't swear to it, but that is apparently that type of feeling um, that oxytocin gives you. Well, hey, it's cheap, free, legal. Give yourself a hug. <laughs> what is cortisol? Cortisol is the stress hormone, right? So... Um, when the fight or flight system is activated, 
Um, we feel we're under threat. The body gets pumped with cortisol, which is, gives us energy, adrenaline to flee, basically. And it, the cortisol levels are really elevated whenever we feel anxious or stressed. Now, if you think about what happens with self-criticism when we tear ourselves to shreds, we are both the attacker and the attacked. So mm-hmm. that's why um, self-criticism is uh, very highly associated with stress, anxiety, depression, because you're, when you're constantly beating yourself up, you're constantly under attack and you're constantly activating this threat system, and that manifests physiologically and not just emotionally. So, uh, And there's research showing that when you stop, drop the self-criticism and instead start giving yourself soothing, comforting, kind messages, your cortisol levels actually drop. So why do you think people are so critical of themselves, especially, is it the same in all societies? or? No, um, it's not quite the same. Uh, some, we did a study where in Thailand, actually, and they, they do take their Buddhism quite seriously there and, and meditation, they're less self-critical. Um, in Taiwan, though, right, so it's not just Asian mm-hmm. countries, in Taiwan, they're hypercritical. So a lot of it is the messages your culture gives you. Um, is self-criticism considered to be a necessary tool to be a good citizen or not. Um, and I think people criticize themselves as, again, they really do think they're helping themselves by being self-critical. They don't really understand the difference between seeing a behavior as being bad as opposed to seeing themselves as being bad. Mm-hmm. So they think, if, they think they need their self-criticism. Otherwise, they will, again, be horrible people. I think the other thing that happens is if you think about it, when you criticize yourself, you're laboring under the illusion that there is control. It's just you messed up, that theoretically there is control. <laughs> you should have been able to do it the right way, and it was your fault that you didn't. The truth actually, as we know, is much more complicated. We can, we can have an influence on things, but no one's really in control totally of anything. And I think a lot of us are afraid to let go of our self-criticism because we feel like if we do that, we'll let go of our illusory sense of control. I think, you know, this is my theorizing, and I don't have any research to back this up, but I suspect that's part of what's going on, that when you accept, you know, I'm human, I make mistakes, I have weaknesses, I can't always get it right, it can be a scary feeling for a lot of people who don't really want to accept that reality. Okay, you mentioned research. Is there uh, some research basis between some of the things uh, behind some of the things you've said in your book? Oh yeah, there's a, there's a, a huge uh, research base on my website, um, selfcompassion.org. Um, I've got a page where you can link to a good number of the research studies, not the dissertations, but I'd say there's close to a hundred at this point, looking at the link between um, self-compassion and well-being, whether it's less depression, less anxiety, greater happiness, greater life satisfaction. They're starting to do more of this physiological research, as I said, looking at brain waves, looking at cortisol levels. Um, they're starting to be research now looking at what happens when you train people to be more self-compassionate and how that changes their their mental health. So absolutely, there's, there's a ton of research on this. I'm not, I'm just, not just making this up. <laughs> Um, but yeah I I, uh, it's it's an interesting field because it's scientifically grounded and yet I think it speaks to something that's so relevant to our everyday lives our everyday lived experience Um, I think a lot of this makes sense 
intuitively as true, um, and it's also the case that the science really backs it up. Okay, talk to me a little bit about motivation. How do people get motivated if they're not going to be beating themselves up all the time? Yes, and again, this is where people get tripped up. Beating yourself up is one of the worst motivators you could possibly choose. Uh, if you beat yourself up, you're, you will almost inevitably be depressed. And depression is not exactly a great motivational mindset, right? I'm depressed, I'm lazy, I'm worthless, I can't do anything, I hate myself, right? That's not like a get-up-and-go, conquer-the-world type of mindset. Mm -hmm. um, so you, you need to, again, I think the best analogy is the ideal parent who's very compassionate, who doesn't want their child to suffer, who wants their child to be healthy and happy. Let's say their child comes home with maybe poor grades in school. Now, the parent, if the parent says, you are so stupid and lazy, you know, I hate you, you're never going to amount to anything, that's not going to motivate the child at all. It'll do just the opposite. But if the, if the parent says, you know, listen, I know you, you've got dreams of going on to college, we've got to get your grades up, otherwise you'll limit your opportunities, and I want you to be able to reach your full potential, but we you know what's going on, what's happening, maybe we need to change your study routine, maybe we need to have you take some extra classes, Again, let me help you. Let me support you. I care about you. And that's how the mother motivates a child. That's going to be much more effective. So the idea is you're always motivating yourself because you don't want to suffer and you want to be healthy and happy. And you can think very creatively about how to do that. And compassion isn't necessarily soft. Sometimes compassion is fierce, you know. No, you have to go to bed on time. You have to eat your vegetables, right? As the mother would say to your kid mm -hmm, or to yourself, mm -hmm. you know, in your in your line, you know, no, you can't take that drink or whatever it is you have to do. You can be quite fierce, in, but it's all in the service of your own well-being, the end to your own suffering, the, the fulfillment of that deep yearning not to suffer, um, as opposed to motivating yourself by just saying, I'm terrible and I better do this or else I'm going to be a horrible person, and then you make a mistake, and then you say, I'm a horrible person, and then, as you say, you go on that, that negative downward spiral again. Yeah, sometimes I like to be a little hokey and say um, <laughs> the motivational power of self-criticism comes from fear. I better get in line, otherwise I'll beat myself up, use the whip. And the motivational power of self-compassion really comes from love. I care about myself, I don't want to suffer, and that's the reason I'm going to do it. And I think it's just much more sustainable. Okay, you talk about emotional resilience in your book. Tell me about how you attain that. And right, well, um, having, if you think about it, if you, having that really wonderful, compassionate, supportive friend with you inside your own mind all the time, there precisely, when you fail, you fall flat on your face, you make a mistake, that's an incredible coping resource. Um, you know, it's wonderful if we're lucky enough to have good friends or relations, relationships where people are there for us, but they can't always be there, and they've got their own dragons to slay. So by adopting, cultivating the habit of kind, compassionate, understanding um, that voice towards our own selves, we can rely on that voice when we need it. So, um, again, the research shows that people who are more self-compassionate, they cope with failure much better, they cope with challenges much better, they're much less anxious, much less depressed, much happier, um, more optimistic. Uh, one study even showed that people are more creative. When you're Again, it's all about safety. 
that's a really good way to frame it. When you are compassionate, you feel accepted, soothed, um, you feel like you're part of this larger whole, this larger human whole. Safety is the place we need to feel safe if we're going to be at our best, if we're going to respond in the healthiest way, if we're going to be able to reach our full potential. When we feel unsafe, when we feel under threat, which comes when we're constantly attacking ourselves, we aren't going to make good decisions, we're going to react, we're going to do things that aren't in our best interest, because, again, we're acting out of fear, not from this calm, stable place of safety. So that's really what self-compassion can provide you with. There was an anecdote I was looking at earlier today in the book. It's about a woman that wants to start a food bank and uh, another woman that's going to help her. Do you, do you uh, recall the one I'm talking about? Yes, I do. Yeah. Tell, tell us that anecdote. Tell us all, all about that and what it means. Well, I, I was talking there actually about narcissism. Uh, one of the problems with the self-esteem movement, sadly, is that we have – the highest levels of narcissism in today's college students ever recorded. So again, this idea that I have to be special and above average and you're given all those golden stars and you're great, although they were very well-intentioned, the result can be people who are very self-absorbed, um, who can't handle any image of themselves other than they're the best, number one, great, perfect, etc. So I was ma- the story was basically making the point that People can get this type of self-esteem from anything, sometimes even doing good works. Um, So occasionally you get people you think are just world saviors doing these amazing things, and you can even find that beautiful acts of charity like that can even be sullied by the narcissistic ego. So in other words, you just it's all about, I guess the point was about the motives. Why are you doing it? Are you doing something to impress other people? Are you able to admit when you make mistakes? Do you have to be number one? Do you have to be like the number one fundraiser for this charitable cause? Um, Or are you doing it just because it's really where your heart is and um, are your motives more pure? Uh, So that's that's kind of the point I was trying to make with that story of the woman who ran ran the food bank and um, got help and actually rejected her helper because it made her feel... Um, I should have told the story first. <laughs> she rejected yeah. the woman who gave her money to help her run this charity because she felt that somehow that belittled her, that she was in the position of receiving help as opposed to giving help, and that actually hurt her ego. And so that's why she reacted against the woman who was giving her help. And you, you see you see messy dynamics like this all the time. You think, why is that person kicking the helping hand that's you know, reached out to to give you aid, and sometimes it is because of the ego that people don't want to feel like they're in a position where they need help. Well, it's very easy, at least for me, I found that it's very easy to get too ego involved. And I mean, I'm running a free of charge support group, and I Mm -hmm. had to do a lot of work to keep from getting too ego involved so that this isn't just a, you know, Something is pumping up my ego because I can tell when that's happening, and, and then it starts, and that's not right, and I know it's not. So I have to always find ways to, you know, you know, say, you know, this is not for ego gratification. Right. You know, and I have to say, same thing. My book came out. You know, of course, I was watching my Amazon numbers. You know, I got a good news piece, and they 
jumped up my Amazon numbers. I was selling more, and then it went down. It's it, first of all, we shouldn't judge ourselves for having egos, or we shouldn't even judge ourselves for the desire to be number one. This is all very natural. It's part of our culture. Even again, even as mammals, we come from hierarchical ape groups like chimpanzees where there were benefits to being number one. You got more food and more women and all those resources. So it is a natural human tendency. We shouldn't judge ourselves for it, but we just do we can make the choice. Is that really what I want? Is that really why this is important to me? Um and then if you know, and if it starts causing you suffering like, oh, gosh, I just feel terrible because my Amazon numbers went down today, <laughs> then is it really worth it to you? Is that really where you want to be spending your mental and emotional energy? Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, that, everyone, everyone, that happens to everyone. It's, again, very, very human, a very human reaction. I think you can feel when you're on track and when you're off track, you know. I know when I'm, when I'm mm. on track, it's good. When I'm off track, it's like, uh-oh, the ego is getting too big here. It's got to, you know, get a little more detached it's 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 a detachment, I think, is a lot of it. Yeah, yeah, and detachment, and I know the sense you mean it, not in the sense of not caring, mm-hmm. but not being totally invested, not investing your self-worth in a particular outcome. Um, and I think you're right, suffering's a great little, like, clue. Are we on track or not? And if we're really suffering, maybe something needs to be shifted. Okay, I'm gonna, we're going to close up pretty soon here. I think we've got about five minutes, four minutes left. Um, okay. How does how does self compassion relate to compassion to others? Does it help us be more compassionate to others? Yeah, and this is interesting because this is uh, the research on this has even changed since when I wrote the book. The book just came out this year, so this is a new field constantly evolving. Um, but it seems to be that among uh, college undergraduates or younger people, there's actually no link between at least on self-report measures and people describe describe how they act towards themselves or others. There doesn't seem to be a link between how kind you are to yourself and how kind you are to others. And I think that's because a lot of people um, are very kind, caring people to others but just tear themselves to shreds. For And I think especially for younger people who haven't had a lot of experience of life, haven't had a lot of these you know, shared stories, understanding how we're all kind of go through these similar similar struggles, that how people treat themselves and others can be really quite separate. But interestingly, among older adults from the community, not college students, but, you know, 40, 50-year-old people and also people who practice Buddhist meditation, there is a link. In other words, the kinder you are to yourself, the kinder you are to others or you know, maybe the opposite as well. The kinder you are to others, the kinder you are to yourself. So it's it's interesting that it seems to be this process of, as you develop, recognizing, oh, I'm not so different from other people. Everyone makes mistakes. You know, what I go through, what other people go through, when you start opening opening your heart to the experience of suffering in general, it's more inclusive of self and other as you develop and, and grow. So... um I'm just writing up this paper now, so <laughs> I find it very fascinating that there's this developmental component to it. Okay, it looks like we're about out of time. Thank you very much for being our guest tonight, Chris and Neff. Ah, well, thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. And everyone, come back next week. Our guest will be Helga Matko, who will be telling us about Gestalt therapy, and Tom Horvath 
who is president of Smart Recovery and Practical Recovery as well. Good night, everyone. Good night.